This time of year, many people want to give back, but it can be overwhelming to choose where to donate. There's thousands of options. GiveWell is a resource for donors like you. GiveWell does in-depth research to identify a very short list of exceptional charities that help you do the most good for your donation. All the details of their research are available for free online. Visit www.givewell.org to make your charitable donation go further. In the French Revolution, they replaced the calendar with, uh, it was like 12 months that were each composed of three 10-day weeks, and then there was a five-day year-end festival. But they got rid of it. Yeah, Napoleon. (laughs) Fucking guy. Didn't work out. Brought back our shambles of a calendar. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, This is Friday, but we are doing it more like a Tuesday. We got Sarah Cliff here. Hi. Back from the uh, antipodes. (laughs) Really? What? what? Yeah, that's what it's called. New Zealand. The antipodes? Yeah. I've never heard that. Look it up, man. Anyways, I've come around to your theory that New Zealand is actually very elaborate CGI because it's, it's... too nice to be real. Ah, I don't think it's legit. So yeah, it's, uh, I'm with you. It's a it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. Um, Dara is uh, in Ohio, which I think is is an all too real place. Uh, That's very we'll real. Be, we'll be back with us next week. Um, we wanted to do a little uh, a little year end content. I think there has not been a lot of news over the past several days. God bless. Um, and you know, sort of reflect on. Stories that we think uh, maybe did not get as much attention as they as they deserved in the course of, of 2017. And uh, I don't know. What do you think, Sarah? Yeah. So I brought my undercovered story, which I think it's it's a few stories that go together. But it's basically the regulatory dismantling of a lot of the Obama legacy by the Trump administration. So I think a lot of times we have a tendency as reporters, as policymakers to focus on what is happening in Congress because it's much more visible. There's just one Congress, unlike the agencies, of which there are many. And you can kind of track very easily what's happening. Bills are made public. You can follow the process with the tax bill, with the health care bill. But one of the things I think has been happening that hasn't gotten enough attention but is quite consequential is the Trump administration, you know, across different agencies, taking really big steps to change the way our country works through regulation, which is a lot less sexy, a lot less covered. It's a lot harder to cover, I'd say, as a journalist, because there's much less of a schedule. You don't really know when things are coming out. The regulations are very long and very boring, but they actually are very consequential. Also, to to pull this back a little bit for people, I mean, you've reported from, from the Hill more than I have, but like reporters literally like stand around in the hallways and you like see the members yeah so you can ask them right so like if you're in congress and like i want to know a question about the health care bill i can literally like i know good times to go find i don't know like susan um collins and ask her a question about like where she is in the health care bill or like what she thinks about the individual mandate portions that's not really an option with federal agencies you can't hang around the halls of hhs they will ask you to leave. You need a visitor pass. You need an escort to be there. You can't go up to the bureaucrat writing the regulations saying like, hey, where's this issue going to land? Um, it's a lot more closed off just logistically, like you're saying, than um, than Congress is. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just, it's important because I think readers don't always know, but it's like 
there's a ton of reporters on Capitol Hill because, I mean, because the stories are important, but also because sending them there, they come back with stories, right? Whereas if we said, like, why don't you just just hang out at the Interior Department and, like, ask Ryan Zinke's general counsel some good questions, it, like, it wouldn't work. No. Right. So like that's that's why we don't do it. It's it's not that like editors are like too dumb to see that there's interesting stories in the agencies, but it's like it's hard to generate like the journalism. And I think it's harder to see the interesting yeah. stories because they're often buried on like page 522 of some regulation. So I want to talk about one particular example just to kind of make this a little more concrete, even though I know there's a bunch going on at EPA other places, but since I cover HHS the most, I, I want to talk about this part of Obamacare that doesn't get much attention, which is this move to pay doctors for value instead of volume. So instead of like rewarding people for doing a dozen tests that people don't need, actually pay them more when they provide really cost-effective care. And the Obama administration was really all in on this idea there were a lot of experiments in the Affordable Care Act. Um, in the last years of the administration, they set a goal of getting to 50% pay-for-value by 2018. So by 2018, 50% of the payments through the programs they run, things like Medicare, Medicaid, would in some way reward doctors when they provide better care. Um, there were a lot of requirements that doctors adopted new payment models. Um, and the Trump administration, through regulation, has halted a lot of this work and really set the country on a very different course. So one concrete example that's kind of easy to think through is the Obama administration, they want to pay Medicare doctors a bundled payment when they did a hip replacement. So instead of, you know, paying for like this screw in the hip and that screw and that procedure and the recovery, they want to say like, here's how much we're going to give you for hip replacement. And like, you're going to have to work within that budget, which would give you a reason to try and provide more cost-effective Healthcare, And there was a lot of, especially from orthopedic surgeons, a lot of complaining that this is going to be bad for them, that they don't want to do this. But the whole idea was to get people to think about, okay, I just get this lump sum payment. How can I do care in that in that particular amount of money? And the Trump administration has essentially rolled back this program. This is kind of one of the bigger Obama efforts to pay for value. Obama would have made it mandatory in 67 geographic areas. Um, the Trump administration has cut that in half, and a lot of it's now voluntary participation. A lot of this was actually led by um, former HHS Secretary Tom Price, a former orthopedic surgeon and now former HHS secretary after we learned about his penchant for private planes. And the where the Obama administration wanted to make a lot of this mandatory and require the Trump administration is essentially sending doctors the message you can do this if you want to, but you don't have to. And it's really a big shift and one that's been happening through regulation. And it's one that I don't think gets much attention, but actually is really going to shape the way healthcare is delivered. And this is one example of what are numerous regulations that are changing the way America works in a very low-key but important way. And I, I think that's a really great example. I hadn't really heard about this except from you. That's why it's undercover. There's so much, you know, what does get covered on the regulatory front tends to be stories that fit into very simple ideological sort of frame, right? That like under Obama, the EPA took a really skeptical look at toxic chemicals and was like inclined to ban a lot of them. Under Trump, it's inclined to take a really skeptical look at regulation and let companies do what they want. And there's, there's different ways you can 
phrase it, but it's like it's like a tug of war between like liberals think there's not enough regulation and conservatives think there's too much regulation. You see that whether it's net neutrality, uh, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, a, a lot of things like that. But this Medicare stuff, like it's a government program, right? Like there's no question here of like regulating, quote unquote, like like a private business. It's like the government has this pot of Medicare money and it's like, how should we spend it? And Obama had this idea, which, you know, once upon a time, this was always controversial, but it wasn't ideologically contentious. Yeah. Right? There was like, there were some people who thought that you could make Medicare more efficient by doing these bundled payments. It was not like a big, like, left or right. Like, there's a large ideological disagreement about, like, should we spend so much money on the social safety net? But, like, how should we spend the money is really a, it's like a, it's there's a There's actually, like, a lot of bipartisan support for this kind right. of approach to healthcare. Or, it doesn't fall along normal ideological lines. Or, or there lines. had been, right? I yeah. mean, like, before Obama became president, the kind of thing a smart conservative might say to criticize the big government program of Medicare is, look, they're just paying all these doctors fee-for-service. Like, the more screws you put in the hip, the more money you get. Like, that's dumb. Lol, bureaucrats are stupid, <laughs> right? And so Obama was like, okay, let's make the bureaucrats less stupid. Let's make it harder for doctors to like game the system. Let's make sure we're only spending money if we're getting something valuable. And what Trump is doing is no, you know, like doctors are like rich business guys, hospital. They just like they don't want to have to deliver value. And so he's helping business out with what it wants, which is just like a spigot of money that they can dip into. And and you see the same in the in the for-profit colleges sector, where the Obama administration had really cracked down on saying, again, like, you're playing with the government's money here. We're going to demand that you, like, try harder to show you're actually doing something useful. And Betsy DeVos has, like, really just been like, nah, just, like, just go do whatever. Separately in Congress, like, there will be a debate, like, should we just cut student loan funding? Uh, maybe someday Paul Ryan will revive the idea of cutting Medicare spending. But, like, as long as it was going to be spent, the Obama idea was to, like, try to make the money be well spent. And the Trump idea is, like, no. Right. And, I mean, in the case of all this Medicare stuff, I actually I attribute a lot more of this to Tom Price than to Trump. So it's possible this is something that changes. Yeah, I mean, Trump is probably year. not like up late um, at night. Mostly because about like Tom Price, he's a former orthopedic surgeon who, when he was in Congress, he was an outspoken uh, opponent of these programs. And it seems very much like something specific to him. But I think these things are really going to matter a lot. Another regulation that came out of HHS this year that didn't get much attention, but this actually isn't a regulation. It was a statement from um, the Medicare director, Seema Verma, kind of an outline of their vision, is one of the things they're also talking about is allowing Medicare doctors to contract directly with patients, which would essentially allow Medicare doctors to charge higher rates if they are working things out with a patient. You know, right now, Medicare has a fee schedule that says, when I give you a physical, you know, this isn't the right number, but, you know, I get paid $50 by the government. This idea of allowing Medicare doctors to contract directly with patients, um, you could see, you know, a doctor in a fancy New York neighborhood saying, I'm a very in-demand doctor and you can work with me directly and I'll get you in the door earlier if, um, you know, you're willing to pay me $100 for that physical. And this is an idea that hasn't really 
come up a lot in policymaking. And it, this isn't quite in regulation. This was more in a kind of vision statement outline that HHS put out earlier this year. But I think it's another signal towards where they want to go. And again, these are ones where it's really challenging to keep on top of the different things that are going on. And it is not going to be as well covered as um, as the process on Congress. I think one other thing that's very different about covering regulation than covering Congress. In Congress, you, you know, in, in a way, you see things develop in real time. Like, you get to watch the evolution of the tax bill from a House bill and a Senate bill. You see provisions fall in and out. Um, you know, it's not completely open door, but you're seeing in real time different policies get added and subtracted and keeping up with what it looks like. With regulation, it kind of just comes out. And then, you know, there is usually the way it works is you have a preliminary regulation, there's a comment period, and then you get a final regulation. So there is a little bit of development in between, but it's it's a lot less. There's a lot fewer stages for input and for evaluation. And I think that makes a lot of the regulatory work almost, um, you know, another th- big thing that happened through regulation this year was the rollback of the Obamacare birth control mandate, which was a pretty significant deal. And, you know, you just kind of waited for this thing to come out. And that was kind of the final word once it was out. There wasn't as much time or space for debate or discussion. This was basically what was going to happen, which is another reason why I think these regulatory stories are are pretty important to be thinking about. And I will add, another thing that makes them weird is that there's then a post-game of litigation, Mm -hmm. right? So, like, one thing that did happen this week is that federal courts ordered the EPA to promulgate new regulations about lead paint within 90 days. Um, And what had happened is that the, the Obama administration originally had I don't know what kind of sway big paint had over the Obama administration, (laughs) but apparently they had sway because they asked for six years to uh, study the problem of lead lead in current paint and how much should be allowed in. It doesn't seem like a six-year issue. And so the the six-year span, it wound up exceeding the life of the Obama administration. And then Scott Pruitt had like asked for like said, no, like, we need the full six years to, like, do this over again. And uh, the Ninth Circuit just rejected that argument. I mean, basically making the case that, legally speaking, at least, the EPA just continues to exist from the Obama years to the Trump years. And it's not like just because there's a new president, the science all changes under you. So they're supposed to go forward fast. Um who cares? I, I mean, I don't want to say who cares. It's an important issue. I doubt this is the kind of issue that... um the Trump administration is going to, like, litigate to the to the mattresses, you know, so this may be the end of it and, and some new rule will come out. But but you have this kind of thing over and over again. Now, one of the most important things that happened during George W. Bush's presidency is that the Supreme Court ultimately ruled that the EPA had to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, right, which was not like a thing the Bush administration wanted to do. It's also not actually something they did do, uh, but the, the legal wrangling around the regulatory process becomes very important and, like, even harder to cover, right? Like, you cannot at all, like, skulk around the D.C. Circuit and, like, ask <laughs> the judges, like, so how do you think they followed the Administrative Procedure Act when they were coming? Like, I mean, they won't tell you, right? Like, right. that's that's not how it works. So it's like, members of Congress, some of them are going to be, like, 
clammed up on any given day, but like somebody always wants to tell you something about what's going on. And like judges really don't. Uh, but the litigation is super important. I mean, a lot of stuff Obama did in his second term mm-hmm. wound up getting held up by by the judiciary. Yeah. Okay. Well, that was my undercovered story. And I think we are going to tell you about Matt's, but first we're going to take a very important break. Do you ever feel like you're paying a lot for crappy quality? Uh, At Everlane, that doesn't happen. You can upgrade your go-tos and your style, make Everlane's classics your new favorites. Uh, There's nothing worse than overpaying for something only to see it fall apart, and at Everlane, that doesn't happen. They only make premium essentials using the finest materials without traditional markups, and they tell you their real costs, so you know you're not overpaying. You're not getting screwed. They want you to know what you're paying for and why you're paying for it. They're radically transparent about every step in their process, from the materials they use the ethical factors they work with. They sell directly to you, which means the prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Uh, so everyone's clothes look better, they cost less, they last longer. So they, they got essentials like Cotton Crew t-shirt. It, it's exactly what it should be. It's simple, it's stylish, it's made from quality materials. Got their Cashmere Crew, 100% human box cut tee. They, they got their Twill Weekender bag. Uh, this is a great bag. I have it, uh, my wife has it. We've gotten it for gifts for a bunch of people at our family. At, at Christmas, it was like embarrassing. It was like a whole bunch of people with the same bag, uh, but it's it's a really good bag, and, and you should get it. They've got timeless essentials. It's exactly what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. So right now, you get free shipping on your first order when you go to everlane.com slash weeds. That's everlane.com slash weeds, everlane.com slash weeds. I felt a little sheepish about calling this an undercovered story because it, it has been covered uh and i've but i i've been looking over the past couple weeks at the uh opioid overdoses issue in in the united states and and i do think that it is undercovered i mean i think not because journalists are making a mistake i I actually think uh, a number of great reporters and editors around the country are really trying to push this topic onto the public agenda but what we tend to talk about is like we talk about policy issues that are the subject of political controversy. And for whatever reason, this topic has not like made it to like bubble up to be something that famous, important politicians are arguing about. And you saw it was a difference, right? There was a moment during the Obamacare repeal debate when a topic of concern for a number of Senate Republicans became that they wanted some kind of state opioid funding model in there. And then like tons of stories got written about that request and like how inadequate it was and the comparison to Medicaid. And because it was like a big, interesting political story. But here's a the basic you know my my sort of baseline on, on this is like people people know this is going on people know it's a big deal people may even have read last week that in the 2016 final data it showed so much opioid deaths that um, life expectancy dropped it dropped for the second year in a row it dropped for two years in a row for the first time since the early 1960s but then I looked up the the preliminary data came out for January through May, the first six months of the year, and of twenty seventeen of twenty seventeen, right? And so in the um, in the first half of the year, uh, opioid deaths—I shouldn't say opioid deaths—all drug overdose deaths, but it's, but it's mostly opioids. It rose ten percent year on year, right? And so this is what I don't think people quite understand that like. You've been reading probably for years sort of like sporadic feature reporting about some town that's like racked by opioids. But the problem is getting worse, like a lot worse at a fairly dramatic 
speed. I mean, a 10% year-on-year increase in deaths is a lot from what was already, like last year, it was high enough to push national life expectancy down. And it's 10% higher for the first six months. We don't know. I mean, we don't have the count for the last six months. But like what, I have no idea, like what would cause it to have slowed down, right? Like nothing at all has been done and nobody's even considering doing anything, it seems to me. Well, I think the, I mean, the undercovered part of the story, I think like is the, the point you're making is that we don't really have a plan. Like, like we have a lot of stories that like this is happening. Right. But like there doesn't seem in the opioid crisis, it's changing in a lot of ways. We were talking about this yesterday, just in the office, how one of the things you are seeing, which is a hopeful sign, is doctors are certainly prescribe are changing their prescribing habits. I think it's been made exceptionally clear to American doctors that there is a problem in prescribing opioids for long-term chronic pain, that people should not be getting a massive amount of pills after surgery. I think that is certainly changing in the medical community. But I don't know that that's actually leading to things getting better. One of the things you've seen is as, um, and you know, I've talked to people who have been through this situation, where as access to opioid prescription pills becomes less available, then you see a lot of people turning to heroin and heroin becoming available in a lot of the parts of the country where it just wasn't a drug you would have seen, like, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. Um, Sam Quinones, who I believe he writes for the LA Times, he wrote a wonderful book called Dreamland that if anyone's interested in understanding this story, I would highly recommend. It was probably one of the best books I've read in the past few years where he looks at how these heroin networks kind of spread in these areas that had really high prescription drug um, prescribe, opioid prescribing rates. And the I think what's not getting as much coverage is that the face of, or like what is driving the crisis is changing. It's changing to different drugs. It's changing to heroin. It's changing to fentanyl. And that those things can be more more deadly and we're not getting a handle on them. Well, and the that the... Pathway, right? I mean, so the Obama administration, when Herman Lopez was was on with me, we talked about opioids, and and he said that the Obama administration understood when they started cracking down on pill mills that in the short term this was going to push the like stock of addicts into deadlier substances, but they thought that it was it was worth it that they had to cut off the, the new supply. And I think what we've seen over the past year or two years is that it didn't work that the kind of heroin dealing networks, right, that have become established autonomously. And so it's no longer the case that a person needs to become hooked on prescription painkillers via some kind of poor medical practice, and then they become addicted to opioids, and then they switch to street legal drugs, that there was just like a big heroin problem now in America in a lot of places that didn't have a heroin problem. I should say, actually, a um, lobbyist for the pharmaceutical industry was yelling at me about this, and they want to clarify that what is actually skyrocketing is heroin and fentanyl overdoses, that overdoses of prescription opioids have sort of leveled off. They're still at a high level, right? I mean, if you were reading in 2013 oh, opioid abuse has reached a dramatic new level. Like, it's still at that dramatic new level. Uh, but the the spike in deaths that we've seen over the past three years is almost all heroin and fentanyl. It's not, it's not pills at all. But that's the problem that we don't have. And 
not only is the politics not focused on it, but in a weird way, I think the media coverage is excessively siloed, right? So what, a, another thing that I have read a lot of stories on is the murder rate, right? Which um, went up in 2015 and went up again in 2016. There's some indication that it may go down in 2017, but we don't really know. Uh, crime statistics report with a terrible lag. And most of that reporting has been sort of hooked into the police violence, Black Lives Matter story frame. So there have been stories saying, oh, we're seeing a Ferguson effect, right? Where, you know, poor relationships with communities is, is reducing policing, or we're seeing people touting New York where the murder rate has fallen since stop and frisk and saying, no, you know, this, this Black Lives Matter campaign is, is working. Uh, but Richard Rosenfeld is a, a criminologist in, in Missouri. He wrote a piece a couple weeks ago making the point that as far as we can tell, a huge share of the the increase in the murder rate has white perpetrators and white victims. And it's conceivable that that has something to do with policing in African-American communities, but it's hard to see why that would be, right? It's not to say there's also been some upticks in, in African-American communities, but it's not a racially specific dynamic. And so his point was that it seems like we should probably be looking at a heroin connection here, right? That we know when crack addiction boomed, that led to a lot of drug-related violence, and that we should be considering the possibility that this spike in heroin deaths and the spike in murders is connected to the drug trade. And yet I haven't seen that, like, line being drawn, really, right? You have, like, Trump has this MS-13 hang-up, sanctuary cities, you know, like, liberals have their their things about police procedure, but, like, we're not taking seriously the idea that this, like, unprecedentedly large wave of illegal drug addiction is, like, actually the driving force behind a lot of the big social trends that, that we're seeing. Well, and one thing, you know, I wonder about, like, as the as the roots of this shift from prescription drug abuse to abuse of illegal drugs is whether we start thinking about it differently and whether we start thinking about opioid users as different sorts of people when, you know, they aren't someone who's... I'm guessing we generally take a more sympathetic stance to someone who who got prescribed drugs, who, you know, took them for three weeks after a car accident and all of a sudden finds themselves, you know, wanting more. They refill the prescription and kind of tumble into some prescription pill addiction versus someone who tries heroin and turns out they like heroin and becomes a heroin addict. And I'm curious and maybe a bit worried about how how that changes how we respond and think about the opioid addict. You know, we've talked a little bit uh, on the podcast before about the politics of deservingness and like who deserves help. And I, I don't know, we've covered much like what it means when the sources of the opioid crisis change and like how we think about those people and what we should do with them. Because I think, you know, um, Erman, who you were mentioning earlier, our colleague, he wrote a piece kind of, because he's been reporting on the opioid crisis all year about what he learned in this full year of reporting. And he writes about this idea we still seem to have of addiction as this moral failure that people have, you know, aren't strong enough and that really all the science of it cuts against that idea. But I think when you switch from abuse of legal drugs to abuse of illegal drugs, our lens on it changes a little bit. And I 
I don't know if that changes our response to it. Even it worries me that the response to it could change, even as it seems like the crisis is getting much worse because we decide, you know, those people, well, you know, they're drug addicts. They're not the ones we need to and, help. And I think we're going to see this play into the sort of much rumored 2018, quote unquote, welfare reform mm-hmm. push, right? That already you see some state level efforts to imply uh, more drug testing, to SNAP benefits. And, and I think- Into Medicaid. Right. And I think you could see a big federal push to that, right? To say, to try to draw the narrative that like the social safety net is in fact being used by like parasitical drug addicts and we need to, you know, pull it back for that regard. And that's going to lead to probably just even more deaths among the addictive. I mean, who knows? But I do not believe, I fundamentally do not believe that if you yank some heroin addicts, Medicaid coverage from them, that that's going to be the thing that causes them to like wake up and be like, all right, I'm going to get clean and stay clean tomorrow. Like it's just going to mean more people die. Well, this has been one of the weirdest stories that took hold this year that um, this, I forget who was making it, um, this argument that Medicaid expansion caused the opioid epidemic. (laughs) Do you remember where that I mean, it was a crazy argument, but I, I worry like that idea actually like took decent hold this year right. and well, is can, a really can, worrying can, policy can, idea. I mean, conservatives had this sort of prior commitment to statistical evidence that they think proves that Medicaid is harmful to people. And I think they never had like a plausible explanation of how that would work. Um, so then this idea that Medicaid let people become prescription drug addicts sort of started floating around and has never... Uh, I have I have never seen an even vaguely rigorous effort to demonstrate no. this. Um, what they appear to have shown successfully is that poor states had more opioid addiction in the mid-teens, uh, which— And more Medicaid enrollees. Right, right, right. Well, that's what I mean. Like, I, honestly, I feel like a lot of conservative discourse on Medicaid is like this, like, bottomless pit of bad faith. Um, but— But, I mean, we're going to see this concept applied more, more broadly, right? I mean, I think that— I mean, you, you you talked a lot, Sarah, about deserving versus undeserving poor. And I think that it's going to be tough politically to say that, like, a person who is down on his luck, not because the unemployment rate is 9%, right? The unemployment rate's 4%, it'll be 3.8, 3.9, that he's down on his luck because he's addicted to heroin. And, like, that's why... He needs public assistance. Like, I I believe that that guy should get public assistance, but I think that that is going to be a tough political sell, uh, particularly for state governments that face, you know, they got to fund their colleges, they got to fund long-term health care for the elderly. Like, there's a lot of pressures on state budgets. And I think, you know, as addiction increases along with the labor market improving, I think you're going to see more and more the use of addiction as a kind of like political tool to to dismantle uh, safety net programs. All right. So should we take a break and get to some some big end of year news? Let's break. I'm here to tell you about the secret to a well-groomed guy. It's the art of shaving. This company was founded in New York in 1996. They've been helping guys look their best for over 20 years. They've they got a total routine covered, whether it's shaving, beard maintenance, hair, skin, body, fragrance. Their award-winning products are formulated with the highest quality botanical ingredients, features pure essential oils. So they've created, they, they call it the four elements of the perfect shave. It delivers smooth results every day. So how does it work? You prep your skin with a signature pre-shave oil, then you create a thick, foam 
lather with shaving cream that you apply with a shave brush. You shave, then you replenish your moisture with their aftershave balm. You can finish off the perfect shave with one of their five fragrances. They got sandalwood and cypress, oud suede, vetiver citron, green lavender, and coriander and cardamom. Each clone's been carefully assembled for a distinctive scent. The Art of Shaving offers a convenient replenishment service that lets you save on your favorite products and never having to worry. So here's what you need to know. Our listeners get 15% off their first order and free shipping by using the promo code WEEDS. So you get this offer. You go online to theartofshaving.com. Use our special promo code WEEDS to get 15% off your first order and free shipping. Visit theartofshaving.com for this special offer or for a consultation with a grooming expert sent into one of their many retail locations near you. Okay, so while I was out in New Zealand hanging out with some penguins and sheep, it turns out there's actually healthcare news back here in the U.S. That Big. <laughs> huge healthcare news. Um, so we found out that Obamacare enrollment actually did decently well this year, that it almost remained steady with last year. So 8.8 people signed up for coverage through healthcare.gov. That put a million. Eight, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the 4.8 person really <laughs> needs health care. Um, 8.8 million. This hurt. He needs help. I mean, is this in an arm or something? 8.8 million people signed up for health care through healthcare.gov. So that's just the 34 states that use the federal market. There's um, The rest of the states run their own marketplaces. Some of them have longer enrollment periods. So we're still waiting on those numbers. But to give you a bit of an apples and a- to apples comparison, last year it was 9.2 million people enrolling through healthcare.gov. So a drop of 400,000, but actually really solid when you think of everything that has happened in the past few months. I mean, from not the past year, from the attempts to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, um, the discussion happening during open enrollment about individual mandate repeal, the advertising budget getting cut 90%, and the outreach um, assistance budget getting cut 40%. And the enrollment period being cut in half. So the past few years, it's been a 12-week sign-up period. This year is only a six-week sign-up period. So people had half as much time to sign up for coverage, but you only saw a coverage loss of 400,000 people. You really saw surprisingly robust sign-ups. And it kind of, I mean, I thought the thing we could talk about is kind of like what Obamacare looks like in the age of Trump. We saw a new poll come out earlier this week that found that 44% of Republicans believe that Obamacare has been repealed. Um, At the same time, we have Obamacare like doing decently well. People are signing up for Medicaid expansion for sure. The marketplace enrollment is a little bit down, but pretty steady. And it kind of raises the question of whether Obamacare the Obamacare wars can end with it living in this like hybrid state of like Republicans believing they've done enough to repeal it by getting rid of the individual mandate. And even President Trump saying in an interview with the New York Times today, like I repealed Obamacare and Obamacare still giving out benefits and liberals and Democrats saying, well, this is great. Like people are getting Obamacare. Whether that is the detente event where Obamacare still exists, but the president and many of his supporters think it's repealed. And that's the world where it kind of just scoots by unnoticed. I don't know. I mean, this is the universe in which I wish Donald Trump were a better president, right? That I think a lot of us 
I'll just say not a lot of it was me. 12 months ago, six months ago, I used to have these sort of recurrent fantasies that Donald Trump, who, whatever you may think of him, he is not a fanatical libertarian, right? He has not, like, spent his days reading Michael Cannon's health policy briefs. It's clear that when journalists let him riff, that he believes the government should do something that causes people to have health insurance coverage, right? That like that is an, an idea that is in Donald Trump's head is that public policy should give people health insurance coverage. It's something he's said many times over the course of years. It's in all of his books. It is a thing that he believes. Uh, he also clearly hates Barack Obama. He hates Obamacare. He is a Republican. He wants to say that he repealed Obamacare. My dream, and like, you know, like Jared, General Kelly, like if you were out there, other guys who like Trump are disconnected from like the institutional Republican Party is like, make this work. Like keep saying that you have already repealed Obamacare. And then like say it, say it all day, all night, every time you get a chance. But get on the phone with, you know, whether it's David Cutler or Zeke Emanuel, like with some people who are smart and work with them on ideas that will make health insurance work better for people. I, I think it's clear that repealing the individual mandate does not uh, eradicate the whole Obamacare program and that there are things that could be done to make it work better. And that, like, Donald Trump should, in his own self-interested way, to make in line with his political self-interest, his stated ideals, like, he should do that stuff. He should try to make it work. He should say that he repealed Obamacare and he put something better in its place. But I think what we've seen from Trump consistently for the past 12 years, uh, 12 months, is that he does not have the discipline, the, the, like, mental fortitude to, like, actually see his way through to these kind of solutions. That he will sometimes say in a meeting with Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi that he wants to do a deal on the Dreamers, but Stephen Miller will lead him back to a hardline position, right? And the, the, the Trump administration is mostly populated with far right-wing Republicans, right? And the chief of staff, I have no idea what John Kelly thinks about domestic policy issues, but he appears to be extremely comfortable with the idea that, you know, Paul Ryan should just be in the driver's seat on everything, and that what he cares about is foreign policy and immigrants, right? And, like, that is how they are doing it. It's not, like, it's not good for Trump. Like, there's a reason Donald Trump is the least popular president that there's ever been at the end of his first year. And, like, he he desperately needs to, like, get out of this shell and just, like, talk to some, like, uh, he must know some guys who, like, own hospitals or something. You know, and just, like, speak to somebody. Don't talk about Obamacare. Like, just talk about healthcare. Like, how can we make it Well, Zeke better? Emanuel, he was taking a few meetings at the White House earlier this year. There so you maybe, go. Yeah, I mean, you did, like, speaking to your, your Trump dreams. So this is what Trump said in his interview with the New York Times that came out today. He said, we've essentially gutted and ended Obamacare. So, like, that kind of speaks to— right. I think you're right. So, like, the that's question an overstatement, is like the, but, like, yes, let him have but it. But let him have it. And, like, I think it's—it will also be interesting to see how, like, liberals and Democrats react. Like, if they are going to say, no, 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 you haven't. Like, 9 million people just signed up for this. Obamacare, like, is thriving. 
or if they're going to like embrace this as a, just a strategy and say like, you know what, fine, like you'll stop attacking it. You can say it's repealed. Like we don't have to fight this battle anymore because I think there's a strong urge on the liberal side to like tout how resilient and amazing yes. Obamacare is. And like you tried to sabotage it, but it's still it's still thriving and people are still signing up and Obamacare is better than ever. And I think it also plays out like you were talking about the strategy, like how this could get screwed up, um, you know, by Trump not being a great president. I think there's also strategy things happening on the liberal side where they have this strong desire to to talk about this law that um, that is doing so well. I think one of the places where you might see a lot of this tested out is um, now that the individual mandate has been repealed is if there's some kind of crisis in the spring where a lot of insurance companies decide, like, we don't want to sell Obamacare. Um, you know, we're out. Premiums are skyrocketing. Some places, you know, there's zero insurance carriers. You can't actually buy Obamacare. So I could see it, like, going in the direction, like you're saying, where the Trump would be like, oh, well, we got rid of Obamacare. And, you know, Congress would come up with something to slot into that. And you talk to Zeke Emanuel and you talk to some hospital CEOs. Um, or it's just bad. Like it actually is Obamacare <laughs> repeal. And like people aren't able to get health insurance and you can't have this stasis where Obamacare exists and Republicans say it doesn't exist, that actually the individual mandate causes such a collapse where, um, you know, it's not all of Obamacare. I think Obamacare has become shorthand for the insurance marketplaces. Like we're setting Medicaid and even the payment stuff I talked about earlier aside. Um, I don't know. That feels really unknown to me, like what things look like in the spring. And like if this um, if Obamacare, how, how, I don't know how much of Obamacare is repealed, I guess is what I'm saying. I don't know how much repealing the individual mandate dismantles Obamacare because we haven't really seen the results of it yet. And we also don't know what state governments are going to do. Sure. Right. So like California could and I think probably should pass a law saying that in the state of California, yes. you need to either have a qualifying health insurance plan or else you need to pay not whatever the stupid Obamacare fee was. Um, you want to go higher. But yeah, yeah. Like, a, like a high <laughs> fee, yeah. right? California, uh, Maryland, D.C., Washington State are already talking about their own mandates. Right. But they, they should say, you know, you got to pay $2,000 or apply for a hardship waiver or show that you have insurance. And they should do some of the employer mandate stuff, too. They should say, if you're employing whatever, 500 people in California, you have to give them... In, like, they, they should... Like, they should just do this, right? There's been a lot of this, like, leaping ahead to, like, maybe we're going to have a uh, Medicare for All program in California. And, like, maybe they will. Like, by all means, go work ahead at that. But, like, in the next, like, 12 weeks, like, blue states that want people to have health insurance should just do the right thing. Because the challenge for a state-level universal health care program is about getting the money and Trump did not repeal that part of Obamacare, right? Like, people, if you induce people to sign up for these plans, they are eligible, fully eligible for the federal subsidies. So that's the part that's hard for a state government to do. The part that's easy for a state government to do is to, like, make people get the subsidies that they are eligible for. And, like, they should just 
do, frankly, red states should do it too, but they won't because they're crazy. Uh, but like, if you have a democratic legislature, like it is a, it is a no brainer. Like the federal government stands at the ready to like cut checks to huge quantities of people, but you got to like make sure they have some kind of shove to actually go sign up. Um, and, and you're like healthy, affluent people who were mostly not signing up despite the mandate. You really should make those people sign up for healthcare. Like they wrote this for, maybe I should put my cards on the table, but they, in the like end game of Obamacare after like a year long process where they were like, we need to diversify the risk pool by making everyone sign up. They like wimped out at the end and like had like a really, really low fine. Um, but if you, for some reason, are rich, right? If if I don't know why you're making $750,000 a year um, and also don't have no, you're like a 25-year-old Silicon Valley I don't know why. I don't know. Person. But if that is you, you should pay a giant fine if you don't go buy health insurance. Because you should just buy the fucking health insurance. Right. Like, it's not a big deal. Nobody would actually pay the $200,000 fine. Like, just get the health insurance. $200,000? Really <laughs> well, you know what I mean. Just, there's, it should be... Like the goal should be to set the fine so high that you have no fine revenue. Mm-hmm. Well, and this this raises like another like the like is Obamacare repealed? Like one future you could see is Obamacare is repealed <laughs> in in red states, but in blue states it essentially stays how it is. So you would see this like West Coast and Northeast where they pass. I think once one state does this, you're going to see it ping pong around a bunch of other states. Um, I know Washington state is in a bit of a jam because they don't have an income tax. So they're trying to figure out like, how do we do this? Um, but the rest of them, I think like it's a pretty easy. Oh, so they should have an income tax. Probably, they could get an inc- they, now they have a blue legislature. So maybe that's the solution. But you, one future that could also happen are a lot of disparities between states where you see collapse in like the South and in some Midwestern states and uh, Obamacare essentially going on as um, as it exists now in the states that support it, which has been happening already a little bit. You've seen this this year with the states that run their own marketplaces, which is, you know, about a dozen states that support Obamacare. They've been doing all their advertising. They've been doing their longer enrollment period. They're trying to keep things exactly as they were last year, but I think the individual mandate is a more crucial piece. But again, it's really uncharted territory. There's a lot of guessing right now, ranging from the subsidies are the most important part. It doesn't matter that the individual mandate is repealed to the markets will collapse without individual mandate. Nobody knows. We've never taken a health insurance Ob- like program like Obamacare and ended the requirement to buy insurance. So nobody knows where that leads and like that 8.8 million number we don't i have no idea right now like if that'll be 4 million next year or if it'll be 8.6 million it's completely unpredictable and one of the reasons it's so unpredictable is it relies a lot on private actors it relies a lot on insurance companies making decisions about whether they want to sell in that marketplace and they probably don't know at this point whether they want to sell in that marketplace right i just want to emphasize that like to an extent, like, political actors control their own destinies here, right? Like, even Republican states should try to not destroy their insurance markets. State governments have the authority to do this Mm -hmm. taxing if they want to. Uh, The Trump administration could reach into the bag of Republican, like, quasi-mandate ideas and, like, bring in a continuous coverage rule and, like, 
probably they won't. Like, prob- but a Republican state legislature could do that. Yes, right. Everybody should. Like, it doesn't have to be an individual mandate. It could be a continuous coverage requirement because you're in Kentucky and you can't pass an individual mandate. Exactly. And I would just like urge everyone to like don't. Don't just, like, watch this freight train, like, come hit your state and then be like, I wonder how I'm going to spin it when it comes. Like, do something, right? Like, if, you, if you're if you comfortable with the mandate, do that. If you're not comfortable with the mandate, like, phone up some health economists and they will sketch out yeah. alternative strategies state for State legislators you. should give me a call. Sure, <laughs> right. Or call, or call Sarah. Um, we, frankly, this has been covered extensively on Vox.com. Uh, but if you if you need some pointers, you know, e- email us and we will we will hook you up. All right. Is it time for our last white paper of the year? But first, uh, a break before we get to it. GiveWell is an amazing sponsor. I'm so glad to have them because this is an organization that really does a lot of good in the world. I mean, what could be a better resolution than to give more to people around you, to people in need, and to give your money more effectively? That's what GiveWell is is all about, right? There's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of causes out there, and, and they all sound like good causes. But, you know, you want to do the most good that you can with your money. And to do that, you really need to know not just like what's a good cause, but what what are the best causes? What are the best charitable organizations out there? There's a lot of charity evaluators out there, and they mostly use, frankly, really shoddy methods. And, and GiveWell is different. They seriously research programs to help you understand which are the most cost-effective in terms of, you know, if I give $100, what's going to save the most people's lives? What's going to do the most to boost incomes for the neediest people in the world? Uh, so, like, one of their top charities is the Against Malaria Foundation. They distribute nets to prevent malaria and avert child deaths. And so, so they recommend against Malaria Foundation because they've audited and they show that for really very little money, these nets only cost $5. And it's just incredible public health impact in, in preventing deaths of children. So all this stuff is backed up by really rigorous studies uh, that supports the idea that there's large impacts here. And you don't need to take their word for it. Their website is full of research, really detailed information on why it is that they recommend the charities that they recommend. If you're a super weeds want kind of person, uh, you know, you can die right in and get really deep information on all these charities. Uh, but if you're not, I mean, if you just want to get some recommendations, you go to www.givewell.org and you can leverage thousands of hours of work that their staff has put into finding exceptional charities. This is a little bit of a, a, a non-policy bit of economic research that, that I happen to think was interesting. It was done by uh, Stefano Delavigna and Matthew Genskow. And they're looking at the fact that we have a lot of chain stores in America, right? I mean, um, a lot of CVSs, a lot of Rite Aids, a lot of supermarket chains, um, y- you know, Walmarts, things like that. And so you have the exact a store owned by the same company, and they operate in lots of different towns and lots of different neighborhoods. Uh, but we know that neighborhoods are different from one another, right? I mean, you have... Um, just in, if you just looked at CVSs in Washington D.C., right? Like some of them are in really rich neighborhoods, and some of them are in really poor neighborhoods. And it stands to reason that like the optimal price strategy for a store should have something to do with where it is, right? Um, rich people could probably charge them more money. Poor people, you should probably charge them less money. I mean, not just to be nice, but like actual business sense. Uh, and what they find is that. Companies don't do this, um, that they, to some extent, sort themselves. So you'll be like a fancy chain that mostly exists in fancy neighborhoods, but they don't really 
alter their pricing based on neighborhood characteristics. And when they do alter their pricing, it's based on very broad kinds of things, right? Like there's taxes here and and not there. Um, And so they say that, you know, relative to a model in which you – you know, priced optimally, they're giving up about 7% of profit uh, compared to what you could be making if you were optimizing everything. And also, um, significantly increase the price paid by poor households uh, relative to, to rich households. And it, it reduces the uh, responsiveness of prices to economic shocks, right? So it's like when the factory in town shuts down, like the prices at the local drugstore don't decline, like even a little bit bit, even though it would make more sense to have flexibility of them. Um, so they're trying to ask, like, why this is. And, you know, it's it's not totally clear, but they find the most evidence for what they call managerial fixed costs, which uh, I think a layman might say it's like, just, people are just too lazy. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to defend that way. Because I think it would be a significant amount of work to, like, let's say you're, like, CVS and, like, you want to, like, do this adjustment. I think it's, like, a fair question to ask, like, whether it's worth the work involved to, like, adjust your prices to get that extra 7%. It is. I think that's a fair question to ask. It raises a question about the efficiency of moving to the chain model in the first place. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, I mean, it used to I don't know if it's even true that it used to be this way, but like you think of it as being like, OK, you have your neighborhood store, right? Your local. There were a lot more independent drug stores like 40, 30 years ago. Right. Exactly. And and definitely in supermarkets, there's been consolidation. Right. I mean, supermarket was always like a chain industry, but it used to be more localized chains. And now even a lot of things, you know, it's like you have stop and shop in New England, but it's all part of the same giant multinational Dutch conglomerate that also owns giant and and everything else. Um, And so, you know, the question is like, well, what is lost when you do that, right? And we're saying one thing that is lost is that the managers of the big chains don't appear to have like the bandwidth to like pay attention to where their stores are and what's actually happening there and to set prices accordingly, right? I think that's not something that has been considered necessarily appropriately in merger analysis and and competition policy. Well, it's, are there any chains that are doing this? Because you'd think of, like, if this was a way to, like, get ahead of your competition, if this was, like, a way to, like, this is free money sitting on the table. But when I think of, like, any chain I go to, like, Target, Best, like, going across different segments, um, I would be very surprised to, like, notice, like, I went to the Target a few miles from my house and all of a sudden all the prices were different. I mean, are there, I guess restaurants are doing this to some extent because they are much less um, chain-based. But, like, I don't think McDonald's, I I don't know that, like, McDonald's, for example, is adjusting based on geography. No, they do. In the the fast food industry, you do see a lot Uh, of local price differentials. And I think that the reason for that is that labor costs are a much higher share Mm -hmm. Of, you know, what chain restaurants are are bearing, right? So, like, at a, I, I mean, obviously, like, Walmart pays people to work there, but, like, the main component of the price of, like, a mini fridge that you buy at Walmart is that they need to buy the refrigerator from a supplier somewhere, uh, whereas, like, the, the food cost at McDonald's is really, really small. You're mostly paying for the cooks and the labor market you know, it was really varied from, from place to place and also rent. Uh, so anyway, if you go to McDonald's in Manhattan, it's a lot more than McDonald's yeah. in Texas. Um, 
And that's why you generally can't look up prices on restaurant websites. I also wonder if some of it has to do with like a franchise model versus a chain model. Because like if you're franchising a subway, I I don't know. I I have not franchised a subway. But if you have any control over the pricing, but presumably like if you're going to convince me to franchise a subway in Manhattan, like you're going to have to give me the ability to charge those higher prices versus like if subway is running all of these. And you know what? If they're... Manhattan store loses a little bit of money and their Texas store makes money. Like they can deal with that internally. But I wonder if the franchise model also leads to more of this. Kind right. Of I mean, that is the, the managerial fixed costs, right? They're pushing the decision making down, e- even though it's like the same subway everywhere. The actual managers are more, are more localized. Um, it's interesting to me from just an urban policy perspective, though, because it 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 highlights one of the just sort of infinite, like, weird and obscure ways that you can be um, kind of screwed for being poor, that, like, there should be at least, I mean, it's always better to have more money rather than less, but, like, one potential advantage to living in a whole community full of people who don't have much money is that, like, it should be bringing more discount goods Mm -hmm. into your environment uh, because people have less ability to pay and that should provide some like resiliency and tend to even things out actually right like there would be lower cost of living to move into the lower income neighborhood which might encourage middle income people to like want to do there break up patterns of segregation something like that but we're seeing some sort of fundamental reasons in the business environment why that doesn't happen there's like no there's no like nobody here has any money discount available to anybody, uh, even though, you know, I mean, not just like out of charity there should be, but just like out of cold business logic, there ought to be a little bit more sort of give in areas where, where people don't have the money to spend, but there appears to, you know, basically not be in a in a mysterious way. I still don't think it's that mysterious. I don't know. I don't find it that mysterious that like Walmart chooses a price for its mini fridge. Like you were saying, like a lot of the price is the actual cost of the mini fridge. And the mini fridge doesn't vary depending on where you find it in D.C. I don't know. I guess because I think it's like this big chain that it's just, I don't, I, don't, I, I that's extra 7%. I don't know if that's ever going to be worth the price of. I, I think like it speaks to an important issue of like. 7%. <laughs> what if you get a 7% raise? <laughs> I mean, that'd be nice. You just have to think about what you were doing. <laughs> um, I think a lot of times like, as we see more chains and we see like local businesses leaving, there's like this kind of like emotional reaction. Like, oh, I don't want Walmart. Like I want my like local store. And I think this actually suggests like an economic reason for why you would might want to oppose that those kind of like bigger box stores. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I always used to think that the people who opposed right. big box chains were wrong yes, and that that was dumb and would do articles about, you know, the myriad ways in which big companies are secretly better. For example, they pay higher wages. Um, but now I, it's like, I have to rethink everything. Ugh. It turns out mom and pop actually know whether or not the factory has closed and uh, Papa CVS doesn't care. And it's just going to charge people it's just they're just she's not going to sell anything and just not going to know why or be curious at all. It makes me sad. Ah, uh, well, here's to a, a sad start to 2018. But what makes me happy is Vox Media Podcast Network podcasts. You should listen to all of them. 
but especially the weeds, uh, but also all of them. And you should um, you should join the weeds Facebook group. Yeah. Um, you should not sign up for the weeds newsletter because uh, we're not going to be sending those anymore. Uh, it might come back someday, but you know, not not in January. Um, beyond that, look for us next week. We'll have exciting predictions for the new year. Yes. A fresh new white paper to start things off. It's going to be amazing. Um, so thanks to our producer Peter Leonard. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks, Sarah, for helping us out on a Friday. Yeah. See you all soon. Happy New Year's. Happy New Year. <laughs>